0: my sponsor on the podcast today is Rugby for Heroes the not-for-profit organisation who organise events to raise money for military charities. They've been doing it for fucking years. They've been doing it for like 10 years, over 10 years and they've raised over £100,000 or like £110,000 for military charities. Some of their beneficiaries include ex-colleagues of mine and I have also been a beneficiary of theirs in the past or the charities of which they've supported I should say. They were formed um, out of a group of keen beer gin, beer, gin, beer drinkers and rugby players and old Lemontonians RSC in uh, beautiful Leventon Spa, Warwickshire. And it was formed, the organisation was formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed serving with a parachute regiment in Afghanistan in 2009. They've got a bunch of events lined up this year, although the dates have slipped because of the COVID situation. They were initially meant to be, I think, March, May, and August. All these things are now up in the air, so you need to keep your tab on their um, on, uh, social media, at Rugby4Heroes, Rugby number 4 Heroes, to keep your tab on when those new dates are going to be announced, when, when Mike is able to release those dates. But the events are... Two supper clubs. One in the, one at the Tame Hair restaurant in Leventon Spa, which is a beautiful restaurant. I really enjoy it, and they're really nice people running it, and delicious food. Uh, Organised by Johnny and his merry band of men, and um, might be women as well. Actually, I don't know if he's got women on the team, but anyway, I digress. And also a supper club in London, and then finally there is also a. Beer and Gin Festival which will involve rugby playing as well that's also at Leventon Spa at Old Leventonians RFC own ground so keep an eye on their social media and also take a look at their website rugbyforheroes.org rugbyforheroes.org to find out when those events are going on and I shall, uh, I shall see you there thank you to Mike and everyone at Rugby Heroes for supporting the podcast and for supporting the military community if you want to also, feel like you want to support the podcast or podcasts, I should say. I don't just do this HR podcast, I also do another podcast called the Leading Minds series, which is all around leadership, uh, interviewing successful and inspiring leaders from sports, the military, and the business communities. Um, you can You don't have to be a a, a business to support the podcast. You can do it individually if you so wish. And you can do that through Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com, forward slash H-K podcasts. And on there, you can sign up, become one of my patrons. You'll get goodies when you sign up. You get access to all the podcasts early. So if you're not a Patreon supporter, you... You would not have had the option to listen to this earlier. I think this podcast—they got it three days early. I think they got this one or four days early. Um, yeah, and you also get some—you uh, get all sorts of perks and goodies. You get tickets to events. You get invites to exclusive organize uh, exclusive uh, exclusive. My words are all over the place. My words are all over the place. It's because it's Friday when I'm recording this uh, intro. So uh, anyway. If you want to support me individually, you can do it at uh, patreon.com forward slash hkpodcast. That's enough of that. Onto the podcast. My guest today is a Falklands veteran. He is the second Falklands veteran I've had on this year. Previously, I had Paul Raison, who served with three para in the Falklands in 1982. And this time, it is Terry Wood, who served with two para in the Falklands in 1982. I really enjoyed this conversation. I really enjoyed the last one with Ray. I really enjoyed this one as well. Terry Wood is a fucking character. My God, uh, he's also he's also the chairman. No, Ooh, yeah, chairman or secretary of London PRA, and also the I uh, secretary. Yeah, sorry, secretary of London PRA. He's also the regional secretary for the London region, and he's a successful businessman too in uh, in motorsport. So. Without further ado, this is the H Hour Podcast. My name is Hugh Kia and my guest is Terry Wood. Enjoy. Terry. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah, yeah, a bit of
0: we're uh, you good to go? We're on, mate. Yeah, on. it's uh, it's mate. Since since Ray's podcast, flipping heck, obviously talking about the Falklands. The, the, I was talking to you the other day on the phone about it, and obviously we didn't know each other before that. The, re, the reception, the response to that podcast, and Ray talking through the Falklands has been amazing. And there's been like further like further requests to hear more about it, which brings you you here. <laughs> Q here, no pun intended. <laughs> but <laughs> well so, done. So for for listeners' perspective who listen to Ray's podcast, Ray was obviously three power uh during the Falklands. What's your so who kick it off, mate? How did you end up joining up? There we go. And who okay?
1: Um well I was uh I was a at 17 years old. My brother had joined junior power in 1976. Uh, went from junior power recruit company to two power in Berlin. Um, after Berlin, he went to Ballykindler. Less than a month into the tour, boom, Warren Point. He was driving the truck. He was two power MT platoon and uh, got disintegrated. Um, mate, for people uh, uninitiated in what Warren
0: Point is, obviously has a big, uh, a big place in our power, parachute regimental history.
1: Explain yeah. what Warren Point was when you refer to it like that. OK, well, Warren Point was an ambush. Um, a company, two power, were being taken to Newry from Ballykinla. So they uh, went through Warren Point uh, village it, or town itself. As they come out of Warren Point, there's a large roundabout, went through the roundabout, big lay-by on the left. Beautiful place. Um Elizabethan castles, stone gatehouses, and there was a hay cart on the left with a 500 kilo bomb uh, with hay that had been soaked in diesel and boom, um, the, everyone in the truck except two were, were killed straight away. Uh, all that was left of the truck was a twisted chassis and an engine block basically. It was the biggest loss of life uh, in Northern Ireland's history at the time, uh, for military personnel, definitely for the regiment, um, a Scottish colonel turned up, uh, and his and his 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 BG, and uh, they died in the second bomb. So it was a double bombing. There was firing coming across the border from the south after the first bomb, and then uh, when the QRF turned up. And the helicopter turned up to do a Casivac as the Wessex was taking off. Boom, an even bigger bomb, a seven hundred pounder in the gatehouse, which was um, a stone gatehouse, so it was just shrapnel, you know, and um that that I think twelve got killed in that bomb. There was eighteen altogether died that day. And it was the same day as Lord Mount uh, sorry, Lord Mountbatten died, so it was August bank holiday. Monday 1979 40 years ago um it was yeah just yeah. Like 40 years ago yeah goodness me
0: I remember yeah I remember I remember being told about that when I was in depot uh, you know you get told all the all of the history of the regiment and I remember hearing that and thinking god what what uh, an unbelievable loss of life on for for the unit um yeah. and
1: and for the forces not just power edge. um how old were you at the time I was seventeen, so uh I was only only a baby. <laughs> um brother was nineteen, he was uh, he was a couple of years older than me. He was only just nineteen when he died. He was nineteen in June, died in August, so you know, no life really. And and most of the guys that died that day, you know, it, it wiped out. Obviously the OC got killed, so it was a major, company sergeant, major, company sergeant or platoon sergeant, um NCOs, but a lot of the toms are only 18, 19 years old. Mm. But, mate, sorry, sorry. Can you just angle yeah. your your
0: camera up a bit? Like angle the angle the phone up a bit. Just yeah. You. I just. I yeah yeah. There we go. Yeah
1: yeah. You, up, I'll just put it under it. How's that?
0: Perfect, mate. You were cutting the top of your head off. I was just talking to your okay. mouth. I couldn't see. It. Yeah, square head. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um. So, had you, uh, yeah. So, mate, obviously,
1: sorry, sorry, but that happened to your brother and everybody else. I mean, yeah. did you have
0: any? Did you have any intentions of joining up before that?
1: No, no, not really. Um, it was always his intention. He was, he was what you'd say was army-barmy army from kit from a young age. When we were kids, we used to um, go to Wormwood Scrubs and exercise the dogs on Wormwood Scrubs, which was MOD land still at the time, and uh, the balloon was up because ten power were there. And fascinated by it and from a very early age that was what he wanted to do. And you know, he lost his life, yes, but he was doing what he wanted to do. He was doing it very well. And you know, that's what more could you want in life? And and um obviously I I then joined um I was I was traumatised, but I, I I needed to get away from home in a way. Everyone was cracking up at home. We came from a, a predominantly Irish family as well, an Irish Catholic family, so it was quite same um, year, same year. Yeah, same yeah. Year.
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> it was quite a, um, a a bit of a shock, you know. So, um, and then I, you know, eight months later, I arrived in Depot um, at four six five platoon um went through depot got to p company and uh was told i failed p company because of my attitude so was um sent to retraining platoon which was big shame um this is the first time i've ever talked about it so it's uh it was a shameful thing um and you were made to feel that way almost you know especially if it wasn't an injury it's um so went through to 466 platoon, and I, and 466 platoon were joined by the juniors and the infantry junior leader battalion from Seancliffe. So it was a big platoon, but the staff were keen to 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 help you get through P Company, and they you know they were more motivational than 465, who were keen to uh, not let people join the reg.
0: Was there, mate? Was there um, a something hanging on, pinned to you by the by the depot staff, or something hanging on you on your on your shoulder that that was affecting your attitude? If your attitude was bad at all, and and were they looking at you and sort of seeing your brother and saying? No kind of thing was it any of that because I I've experienced this in the past not not myself and it cannot mate when when there's a a loss in the regiment it affects people in funny ways and yeah. then you get a, a relative join up to follow in the footsteps it, yeah. it it you know it depends like you said alluded to it depends which platoon you end up in all all the platoons are different aren't
1: they they are the, you know the platoon personalities are different and um, a lot of the platoon staff from four six five were one para. <laughs> Wanting to go to, they were they were basically down the depot to get fit to go on selection, and I saw some of the staff in the Falklands, and when they were with 2-2, so um, it was a different attitude. The staff, um, the staff in four six five was a four six six platoon was uh, Alan Coulson was the uh, the uh, the platoon commander. He he was the IO two power in the Falklands. Ian Mackay, VC, was the platoon sergeant who I had a link with because he was a corporal in junior para, and my brother was his in his section as a corporal, as a junior corporal. So um, I, I think I mentioned you before.
0: I'll have to link you in with John Bickers if you don't know John Bickers. Just yeah. I'll do it after, but John, yeah. John was Ian McKay's brother-in-law and he'd he'd loved to speak to him, mate. He yeah. he was you know um he looked up to Ian but um I interrupted sorry go on
1: go on hey, I mean Ian was brilliant. I remember sort of um marching across the square with a left foot and left hand going in the same time trying to trying to march and uh with a a silly badge on my chest um with my name because it's pre um P Company so we weren't allowed to wear a red beret. We wore a uh uh, a C-cap, as they called it. it. was the polite way. The uh, <laughs> C-word cap, yeah. Yeah, and um, Ian Mackay called me over and I, I tried to slam my tabs in and called him sir. And then he he, he, he said, uh, "Don't did you call Captain Coulson a beep? And I said, no, sir. And he said, I'm not a sir, I'm a sergeant. And then the captain turned on me and was like, did you call me a beep? And I'm like, no. So you're calling Sergeant Mackay a liar then? And I just I just went, look, I'm in a no-win situation here. And they laughed and, you know, it was a good platoon. It was, I, I, to look, looking back now as a 57-year-old, a I loved depot. I loved the routine. I loved the fitness. I loved even retraining, you know. Retraining platoon, there was a guy called Matt McCourt that ran retraining platoon. Um, he was hard but fair. And it was beastie, beastie, beastie for, I think it was six weeks till the next platoon came up to do P Company. So we had six weeks of beastie, beastie. I loved every minute of it. Now, I think you're forgetting the really bad bits.
0: No one loves that. <laughs> No one loves, no one loves that, mate. You've you've obviously forgotten all the hideous things. You're looking well, back with fond memories,
1: mate. <laughs> I, I remember the food. I remember the cockroaches in the kitchen and the telephone boxes. Um, yeah, I mean the accommodation was pretty shoddy. And and then after P Company, with uh, when we passed with 466 four what they moved us into Malta barracks before we went to uh, do Advance Wales. So we were out in the the really old blocks, you know, Um, and then went through to Bryson Alton, joined two power in January 1981 in Ballykinla on the same tour as my brother. It was an 18 month residence. So I got the last four months of the tour of the residence. So you weren't far ahead of Paul Raisin then, just you were two power and he was three power he was in the juniors when I was in recruit company. So we probably stagged on Brown in barracks together, you know, he'd have had a pick off and I'd have had an SLR with no, you know, no bullets and an empty mag. So I don't know why we had that frightened people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um Yeah. Paul, Paul, I've come across Paul through the years anyway, and we've got mutual friends. A lot of my platoon uh, from depot went to free power. So, you know, it's, um, and, and, and two and three always were pretty close in the 1980s. Anyway, they worked together quite a lot. Um, we were in all the shot together after they came back from Tidworth. So it was, it was, uh, you knew a lot of people in, so we drank in the shot together. We all met in the globe trotter about half past nine in the evening. As you know, that was the brigades pub. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty mental. The shot was crazy when there was two parachute battalions in order shot.
0: <laughs> I I was ne- I was never there for when the any of the battalions were based there. When I joined up, they were three power just leaving Dover. Um, right. but I I've been there many a time drinking, and then it's yeah man, it's good crack down there. So much heritage there. But just coming c- c- back on. The so you you obviously travelled down the same boat is uh on the Canberra
1: with no with no, Paul. no 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 free power had gone free power was on spearhead so free power had gone two power we were on leave to go to belize so we were already on leave so we knew something was obviously free power had gone um and then no mobiles in those days or anything like that so i'd been out one night and um met a young lady spent the night with her phoned home and my dad said there's a telegram here and it says brunevel which means get your ass back and I went dad you ain't seeing me I'll, I'll be back tomorrow and put the phone down um, my dad was uh, he was a former airborne engineer and a policeman at the time so he wasn't amused but you know I wasn't coming home and then we went to Aldershot um and they basically give us a brief, went, right, we're going. Um, we're waiting for the ship to be ready. Disappear, come back in, I think it was five days. So, or three days. So we we disappeared. I went down to my girlfriend's, got drunk, partied, said goodbye, came back to shot, and they went, no, no, ship's still not ready. Go away again. So I turned up at her house again, and she's thought you are going to war. Ship's not ready. Another <laughs> last night, got back to all the shot, still not ready. I just went on the piss with the boys in the shot on the third night. It was like, you know, what's the point in going back and milking it? That, so we that
0: happened. Uh, that Sorry, that happened. Ex- a very similar thing happened with the with the Iraq war, with the TELIC one in 2003, the second Gulf, the, uh, in 2003. And it was exactly. We couldn't go home though. We had to stay in Colchester. We had to parade every morning at nine AM uh, to see if we were off or not. And it, for for nine days, mate, the blokes were skint. Oh, you know what it's like. It would have been the yeah, same yeah. back in your time. The blokes oh. skint by day two. They thought they were going to war after die All the money getting spent. But then they were going in. The, they were going to the banks trying to get loans out. Yeah, I, I want to buy a new car. Uh, but by that time, the banks are clocked on. <laughs> Iraq, <laughs> no one could get any
1: money. Yeah.
0: Flipping yeah. Out. Things don't change, do they?
1: <laughs> no, I, I, I was badly overdrawn. And um, in those days, you know, the banks did use to write to the CEO and you could get pulled in for the CEO. If it was, um, oh. if, if, if you were seriously overdrawn, you know, and, and you'd have a, you'd have a good talking to. So, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, everybody was overdrawn. There was, you know, too many good nights on, on the lash and, and travelling. I was fortunate, you know, because I, I was a Londoner and, and Aldershot was like, you know, 40 minutes I'm in Clapham Junction. I'm in West London. So a uh, bit difficult for people living much further from Aldershot. They couldn't go home every night like I did. So we were lucky. But and then yeah, we turned up uh, H.M.S. Norland as, as it ended up. It was M.V. Norland. It was a North Sea ferry that sailed across from Hull to Rotterdam. Um, it was a big black and orange ship uh, below the sort of below below the deck, and then white and on top, as I remember it. And uh, they welded some helicopter decks behind at the back of it on the stern and. Also, they'd done a bit of um, um, structural work on it. It was it was equipped for an overnight stay. The cabins that we stayed in, so, um, we spent basically three weeks on it. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was it was a bit of a journey down. We stopped, like Paul, we stopped in Sierra Leone. Um, we didn't have as much time in in Ascension Islands because basically free power and. That battle group was waiting for us to catch them up, so we done a. Um, well, I didn't do it. I actually skived off the beach, the the, the practice beach landing. Um, when I heard there was sharks and all sorts of nasties, a few of us sort of went missing, and and managed to get away with it because of the confusion of it all. Anyway, we we blagged it and and didn't do the practice. And didn't do the skirmishing up the beach in 35 degrees, which was just horrendous. And then, um, again, all the kit came on board. The ship was replenished. And they gave us all this Arctic kit, including these march and ski boots, which they got us to break in. And then they realized there was no snow or no lying snow on the ground. And um, none of us can skate. So, all those blisters uh, and all that, all the price of those boots for a whole battalion, and we never used them. Total waste of time. The kit was, you know, DMS boots were really bad. They let us down badly, the boots. Um, A lot of guys ended up with trench foot, including myself. Um, So, yeah. The Arctic clothing was brilliant. The windproof was the same as the SAS windproof. Um, the Chinese quilts, as they called them, brilliant piece of kit. The Arctic socks and gloves and the Arctic hat. Everybody wore it because it was, I, I've never been so cold in all my life. I thought South Armagh was cold, but um, the Falklands was pretty special with its wind chill, especially. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so when you tell me about the approach to the, Tell me about the approach to Falklands. So, when did you go in RV with? I forget. I forget like all the story. Like for a minute, a minute ago, I thought you were on the flipping Canberra with three power. But I forget. No. I forget the story. But, no, the Marines um, were
1: on. The Marines were on yeah, three
0: power. Yeah, my memory's terrible. Yeah. Not that I was there, but from, from being told about it. So, when you arrived at the Falklands, then where did you hit? Did you hit the West Falklands? Where well, three power? We, well?
1: we, we, t- we we teamed up for, um, Ascension Islands on the way down. It was a big flap. A big flap to cross train everyone, so everyone was being cross trained. Signal, medical, and on the support company, weapons, mortars, Milan. Everyone had a, a clue what to do if you know if they came across a, a dead mortar team and a mortar tube and some bombs. Um, we'd have probably created havoc because too technical. But um, the Milan was there. Um, they just, they'd not long been in the battalion again. We still had Cole Gustavs and things like that in those days, 84s, or the, the Crow Pipe, as it was known in the Parachute Regiment. Um, <laughs> and then they, we, we, we'd got a whole load of new radio sets because we'd gone from the big old Bergen size A41, all this Klansman kit suddenly arrived for the Falklands, so... Everyone had Klansmen and and Duracell batteries coming out of our ears for years, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So we we sailed down. It was a big... At first, I'd never seen so many ships in all my life. There was a lot of ships on the way down, and there was... um, The Norland was quite fun. There was a, a character that was the mess manager, so he controlled the junior ranks mess and lunch times and everything, and he was very... Very good at his job. Very, he was into his job. He loved the responsibility, and guys, guys weren't too happy with him. But I'd I'd sussed out the ship. Uh, I'd I'd got friendly with the crew, and I'd sussed out the back staircase. So every time I used to bypass him and pop out right at the front of the queue. Come dinner time, which was uh, he couldn't work it out. He never he never sussed it. It was a false door and everything. It was perfect. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, we met, we, we, we were sailing down and there was a submarine warning. And that's when the 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 huge packet of ships started bomb bursting in all directions. Um, we would be below the water line and the watertight doors got shut. And we're sitting on our bunks with, in um, my case, a GPMG, a helmet and a life jacket on, thinking, what are we doing here? I'd rather be on deck, you know. So it was uh it was it was worrying, it was really worrying. Then we we eventually got to San Carlos and we started to beach land, we were the first lot to beach land two power. Most of us hadn't a clue anyway. They'd done the little rehearsal, some of them, because a lot of people did actually give it a swerve on Ascension Islands. When we hit the beach, it was just confusion. Because everyone's cammed up. Um, We've all got the Yank cam cream on at the time. So we look like Apocalypse now. Um, So you can't recognize anybody. You know, even if it was was your own mother, she wouldn't recognize you with the cam cream on. Um, and, And basically, people were going, who's that? What company are you? Do you know where D Company is? And I'm like, I don't even know where I'm supposed to go. And there was guys from two two on the beach. They were just cracking up, rolling around at the confusion. Some people were sitting sitting down on the beach facing out to sea in the confusion, having a tactical cigarette. I didn't smoke, so you know. Um What was moved.
0: what was causing the confusion? I mean, Cam and Cream can't see each other. But what was causing the confusion? Was it hard to spot where the rendezvous were for each you each subunit?
1: It was, it was. And and uh, I I think we were sort of we were la- we were beach landed haphazardly all over the beach, all over the landing area. Um, it was uh, it was a marine thing, and and we jump out of Hercules. We don't do landing craft, so <laughs> it, it it was um, it was it was confusing going in. There was naval gunfire going, and I remember that, and remember hearing the the naval uh, shells going over our heads and hitting Fanning Head. Where there was supposed to have been an RGOP. I think the two two had already neutralised them anyway, or they were calling it in on them. So you to go in on a on a beach like that, I mean, Ray, Ray didn't really say. We didn't know what was going to happen. All we'd ever seen is D-Day and Iwo Jima movies, and we didn't know whether ramp down, machine gunned, we're all gonna get it, you know. So it was it was a lot of trepidation going. It was night. I think also it took us so long to get the battalion off the Norland. The swell was quite big. You had to wait for the landing craft to come up to the side door and step across. If you if you timed it wrong when it was on the way down, as, as Ray said, casualties happened, you know. So it was uh it was quite a and we were humping kit. Everyone was humping. Everyone was carrying two mortar bombs, everyone was carrying a 66. Plus their own personal weapon, their own personal kit, the clansmen, med kits, everything. So we were probably humping good eighty kilos. Yeah, do you know what? It's a funny thing that goes out the window, isn't it? When
0: you do all your training, you do all, you, you do all your training, even mission specific, which you didn't have back then, or your exercise or whatever, and you always go in your frontline skills get what you need. And the reality is that when you deploy on operation, almost guaranteed every time. Normally, flipping ten minutes before you get handed. So you got all your kit, which is every enough anyway. And then you get handed. I remember, man, I remember being given sandbags of water bottles and thinking, oh. "Hang on, we might be going like a hot HLS here." And then yeah, you yeah. got to run over the fucking sandbags of <laughs> water bottles, mate. Same with you. And you get your waters and all that. It's it. Yeah. It's something that seems to be always forgotten. It was, it was happening back when you when when you uh, went to the Falcons, mate. It's still out Guaranteed, it still happens. No, guaranteed. You just yeah. think. Let's just dump the kit on them.
1: <laughs> so the, the initial plan was, was two para to land at San Carlos Bay. Um, and then we were to uh, cross a little river, but the SAS were, they were sitting by the river marking the crossing point. And, and again, they were just, they were just cracking up with laughter about the whole thing. You know, they, they thought it was hilarious. Um, And we were supposed to get to the top of Sussex Mountain before daylight, but there was a battalion snake when the sun came up going up this mountain and the air raids were starting as well. Uh, When we was in Sussex Mountain, all you could see was this big bay full of Royal Naval ships, the Atlantic conveyor and other civilian ships that had been seconded, just dodging bombs. It was... Yeah, we were up above it. Sussex Mountain was quite high. So we were looking down on the scene and it was uh, it was horrific. And it was, you know, not I wouldn't want to have been in the Navy. It was uh, safest places in the ground, in your hole. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. then after about a week, we moved off to go Green.
0: Oh, so you were sat on Sussex Manic for a week then,
1: flipping about, out? About a week, yeah. Um, <laughs> so air raid after air raid. I had some good footage of um, cameras still of a Skyhawk. It flew over two power after it had done its bomb run, and the whole battalion let rip at it. And you could see in my picture, you could see chunks. There was there was chunks coming off it. There was bits, and then uh, it went from. I remember. Black smoke to white smoke with flame back to black and white smoke and flame and down it went. So the battalion was feeling really pleased with itself shooting aircraft down. Um, guys with jimpies at the hip and you know... <laughs> it was their first taste of action.
0: Was it the same? Was it the same drill back then as I was taught as in depot? I, I never did anti-air defence. Thank God. I don't, I'd hate to be at the mercy of. Uh... Of an um, enemy's air assets, but the drill we were taught in depot and then periodically throughout, you know, continuation training in Power Edge was um, you you lie you lie in your back, you lie in your back, and you point your weapon forty five degrees into the air, <laughs> stick, it on automa- stick it on automatic, and just let the magazine go. Is that it? That's it. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Or about with two hundred in my case. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, right, it works though, it obviously worked. Well, I, I don't. I obviously um, I wasn't shooting it. I was taking pictures. So, my, <laughs> team, <laughs> I was two feet. It, it was really close. It it, it was less than a hundred feet above a battalion of hairy-ass paratroopers that hadn't fired a shot in anger yet. So, you know, they it got the good news and it, it was good. So we moved off to go towards Goose Green, um, tabbed all night on this awful. Like we called it tussock elephant grass. So you're standing on top of the mounds of grass, and if you fall down in between, with the weight we were carrying with the eighty-one millimetre mortars that everyone was carrying and all the kit, you were like a, you know, you were like a stranded turtle baby's on head. the beach. Ba-
0: babies heads, what we call them
1: though. Yeah, that's what yeah.
0: about baby's heads, isn't it? Like what, yeah. what, what on earth causes the ground flipping grow like that? Madness. And at night. Ankle breakers, mate.
1: Yeah. I mean how 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 we got how they done well to get the battalion there when we did. We laid up in a farmhouse and the outbuildings and that was the coldest night I've ever experienced in my life. Um I'm sure they heard us with the teeth chattering and our bones rattling. It was it was so cold. We were huddling together like you know, like penguins do in the Arctic. And you, you <laughs> want to be in the middle. That's how it was. It was it was awful. And and, and the signalers had tuned the Klansmen into listening to the BBC or World Service, and lo and behold, the Defence Minister announced that British paratroopers were within the Goose Green, Port Darwin area, ready to attack. So, oh my God! The, the Colonel went mad. Colonel Jones went. He, he lost the plot. He was fuming about the whole thing. We'd been compromised. Um, what? What? What was it? Why did they do that? politicians it's just the press they want to break a story they want to make the country feel better the press are obviously what's going what's going what's going and and nothing you know up until goose green we've beach landed and, and nothing you know so yeah we we everyone once we heard the radio the BBC World Service, everyone bum bursted and started digging trenches and, and shell scrapes and hiding, trying to because we were expecting an attack. We laid up that day and then that night we went into the attack at Port Darwin Goose Green. How far away from when you laid up, how far away from the targets were you? I, I think we were less than 10k. Oh, oh but that's, a,
0: yeah. that's a distance, mind. That's a fair yeah. distance.
1: It's not by helicopter, though, and and they had, you know, we were expecting to be attacked by a a, a heli-borne force. That's that's
0: not the point I was making. Sorry, I meant for yeah. you to tab in there.
1: Yeah, yeah, but yeah. we also had to be far enough away that any sort of scouting patrols, any probes, wouldn't find us. Yeah. Um, I remember there there was a probe. There was an R.G. Um, an R.G. officer and four men in a Land Rover. Which was a Falkland Island government land Rover, that he got zapped by um a forward air controller from 216 Para six. Um he'd done them with an SMG. And we 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 came and helped pick up the they were casualties, all casualties at that point. And he kneecapped them. And I'm like, why did you do that? And he's like, I didn't mean to, I just let rip with the SMG. Uh, oh my god. So, yeah, we, we took them back. The, we took them back. The casualties were treated, passed down the line. The officer was obviously whipped off to the intersection. And that was, that was that. And then Goose Green that night, all I remember, the first... I had a pee, um, so my first target. They were all sitting around a bonfire, probably around a K away. Toasting, what time was H hour? Toast, toasting marshmallows. H hour was because it there wasn't a lot of light. Uh, um, I can't remember what time H hour is, Hugh. I've, I've 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 tried to rack my brain on that. It but was dark. He, it was it'd be dark he, by four o'clock. it was evening. It was evening. Evening yeah, attack. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we went in at night. Um, yeah, they would. They were. They were toasting their marshmallows and their sausages and. Um, I, I I opened up on them with a Jim P uh, as a load of 81 came down on them as well. A load of mortar bombs landed around them. And that was our opening sort of salvo. How
0: many, so how many, uh, how many enemy did they estimate to be at Goose Green at that point?
1: Well, we were told there's 300 enemy. They're really equipped and they've all got dysentery. <laughs> 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 Um, so, so it was one para then. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sorry, cut, sorry, one cut, para.
1: Cut that bit out. <laughs> um, they, they, I, you know, whatever the, the the count on the dead is, whether it's four fifty or three fifty dead Argentinians, we still captured about twelve hundred prisoners. So they they got their sums wrong. And Jesus I remember, Christ. I remember when we took Goose Green after three nights and two days, We gave, the, the, what finally happened was the colonel got killed. The two IC took over. Um,
0: the colonel well, talk got, through it, mate. Talk through it.
1: Right. Basically, uh, during the day, we were pushing on at night. During the day, we were starting to lose a bit of momentum. Um, mortars were coming in. We were attacking a, a well-prepared dug-in enemy. They were ready. Do- Two seconds.
0: sex. So sorry, let's just go back. So you you had that initial salvo, which was evening time on day one, right?
1: Yeah, night time.
0: Night time, that was initial yeah. salvo. Yeah. And then so you fought through the night then?
1: Yeah, there was skirmishings, there was it was going on through the night. Um I I I then was um what they called defence platoon. What's so defence platoon was to protect the head shed.
0: The oh. CEO
1: and everybody else. The CEO had his own BGs, but it, the, the, the headshed in general. Like the rover group, like an a extended version of the rover group, right? Yeah. So, when uh, Goose Green, when we pushed on into Goose Green, um, the, the second day that the, they, they were dug in, they'd been there for some time. They had very well-prepared trenches with little perspex sliding windows and all the mod cons, you know, it was it, some of their trench systems was very well designed and 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 dug. Um, so they they we were losing momentum. <coughs> the rifle companies were getting hit hard. They they you know there was there was also Pucaras, which are um, uh, a propped engine ground attack aircraft. They were buzzing around. Um, I got dropped off to look after some casualties with um, another medic, and I was trying to organise a Casivac most of that day and into that night. Uh, The Casivac didn't happen. They kept saying, it's coming, and there's this on the way, and there's that on the way. But the truth was, because of the Atlantic conveyor had been sunk in, in San Carlos Bay some weeks before all the helicopters was on it near enough. There was, there was very few helicopters got off it. So it was back to good old power regent and tabbing.
0: How, um, how yeah. did you end up, how did he, so you end up what, extracting the casualties tabbing and then what, with the few helicopters they were?
1: Yeah, uh, there was a, a helicopter pilot. Um, he was uh, in a scout. So he came in, so the scout was a, a pilot, co-pilot and meant for two passengers. He had little side pods on, so we put uh, casualties lying in the side pods, which was on the skids and we probably put four guys in the back, so he was doubled the weight capacity he should have been flying with when he first came in there was a I was bringing him down on two torches, and there was fifty going over my head. They were trying to hit the helicopter, and it was all bouncing around me so i'm I sort of um, I, I sank into my ankles and made myself I'm six foot three. I was about eight inches high that night and <laughs> I brought him in on two torches. Uh he got a distinguished flying cross, a magnificent pilot. He, and basically we didn't have time to stabilize the more serious casualties, the P1s and P twos. So we gave him the the P threes. Um the less injured casualties that is, they'd been triaged and and The P3s had no immediate, um, they weren't going to die. They were stabilised and everything. Or they didn't need much intervention. They just needed, you know, shell dressings, maybe morphine, get them Casivac. So I made him promise he would come back. As I said, you know, these are not the guys that should be going first. And he did. He he flew in in, uh, three sorties, also, with 120 mortar, 50 cow, 762, Everything's trying to kill him, you know, and, and uh, an amazing piece of airmanship. Uh, and, and we were so thankful for him being there. Did you, have you the met same... him since? I have, actually, I have. Uh, uh, yeah, I've met him a few times. Uh, great guy. I, I'd first got together with him in 1981 in Kenya. And uh, we ended up partying in the same club and ended up in the same hotel. <laughs> but yeah, he, he 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 came back and um, he he cleared all the casualties. We had some prisoners as well as casualties, and I remember the Harrier came in that day and and dropped some cluster bombs on them on the Argentinian positions uh, outside the the populated area, and I, the prisoners I made them get up and cheer for the Harrier. Uh, and oh, my, my God. My little bit of Spanish, I was saying that sort of Gautier es de loco, And, you know, and they were, yeah, yeah, see, sí, see, sí, Gautier loco. And um, when I got into Goose Green, as I said, we, was, we were confronted by about 1,200 prisoners. Uh, the battalion was probably down to around the 500 mark with dead and casualties. <laughs> A lot of casualties. Um, I think it was about twenty odd dead, so it was um, it was a shock. I remember saying to my number two, I walked in with the Jim P and I said to him, "If this lot pick up stones and throw them at us, we are in big trouble." You know, there's too many of them, but we managed to bluff it.
0: What? Well, um, at what point did uh, did H. Jones get killed?
1: He he. Um, he got killed on the second day and basically um, the three rifle companies into para A, B and D, were supposed to be advancing, as I'm led to believe anyway, I was not in, involved in the command structure, I was just a lowly Tom, but they were supposed to advance along this peninsula and see either side um, into Port Darwin. B Company had pushed on and were now getting hit from the side and, and almost from behind and A Company was getting heavily hit with mortars and artillery and uh, they were having a problem with a number of well dug in positions so the colonel came forward um, to get a grip and to motivate A Company and tell them to push on except he didn't he Didn't take advice of the people on the ground and exposed himself, unfortunately, to, to an Argentinian sniper. Um, he I remember seeing the colonel, um, when he was killed, uh, sometime afterwards. I had uh, one of the casualties I had was an officer from uh, one of the rifle companies that w- and he was very emotional, um, especially when we. We, we OD'd him on morphine. Um we gave him a serret into his buttocks and left it and he kept he was he was whinging a lot. He kept asking he was crying and he was he was asking to 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 get the colonel to get us out and to get this one to get us out. And I gave him some more morphine and then I gave him another Surret. Um I think they were 35 milligram surrettes and they basically had set in his muscle because he was so cold. So when I warmed him up finally, I, I ended up getting in a sleeping bag with him to warm him up. And, uh, yeah, it all hit him at once. <laughs> he was uh, he was a very emotional man. And he he was screaming about, you know, get the colonel. And I said, the colonel's dead, sir. The colonel's gone. And he was like, the edge. I said, the edge is gone as well, sir. You know. And so, uh, Colonel Dead, 2IC takes over. We're running low of ammo. We're running short of all everything. Mortars are running low. The mortar line's pushed on, so most of the mortars are having to run back and ferry mortar ammunition forward that we dropped off before we, we formed up on the start line. So it, the mortar line couldn't catch up. There was no helicopters to lift it. And I think they were down to two mortar <laughs> tubes. Chris Cable, the two I see. Uh, out of nine. Out of,
0: two out of nine. Yeah. yeah. Jesus. Oh, you, you can't call them tubes, right? right? They'll lynch you. It's barrels. I made that mistake years ago. <laughs> have you, you must have been told that before. You're taking tubes to wind them up, aren't
1: you? No, no. I used to stay away from those mortar men. They had a reputation, <laughs> <laughs> particularly in free power. <laughs> uh,
0: so flipping heck, nine nine barrels down to two barrels. That is uh, that's yes, yeah, a lot of that's a lot of barrels to lose, eh?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the battalion, the battalion was was str- was starting to to. Uh, yeah, we weren't losing momentum, and I, I never at any point did we, w- did we think we were going to lose, but it was getting hard. And then the, the 2IC came up with a plan to um, send an RG Special Forces guy that had been captured back to Goose Green and tell the general there, watch this building at this time, and if you don't surrender tomorrow or tonight, this is what we'll do to you. And we gave them a firepower demo. Um, with Milan, with Mortars, with Jimpy on SF, it was very impressive. The building caught fire, you know. So, um, yeah, they they smashed the building and and they surrendered to our to our shock, really. 1200 prisoners, roughly,
0: flippin' heck,
1: man! Yeah, and, uh, and and just a, a sea of FN folding stock, FN fouls, and You know, all our signalers and uh, all the support company um, platoons that had SMGs, threw them away straight away and picked up a folding stock FN. Uh, Some of them even went even a little bit more earlier and stuck a 30 round Bren gun mag on it. And uh, yeah, they lost their SMGs at Goose Green, unfortunately, which were useless. You know, a 9 mil piece of 1950s technology. What mate, managing all those prisoners must have been a nightmare. It was. It was. We had them in the. Uh, we put them in the sheep sheds at Goose Green, and uh, we sort of guarded the outside and didn't really interact too much with them at first. Then we had to clean up. There was munitions everywhere, so we we had parties. I had. A, I remember I had a party. He was a medical officer. A sergeant and I had twenty men, and I had to go in a certain area and just clear it of any munitions that's lying round. Uh, they'd volunteered to do it, and and unfortunately for one prisoner in particular, he was clearing up some munitions near their sheep sharing shed where they were living, and um, there was a um, there was a booby trap, and he was he was trapped in um, burning ammunition medics from uh, it wasn't PFA then, it was Parachute Clearing Troop, but para paratrain medics tried to rescue him and they got burnt trying to get to him couldn't get to him and in the end uh, someone shot him dead to put him out of his misery and that, that was quite sobering um, I remember talking to the RG officer and he was showing me a picture of his, his girlfriend and this is my girlfriend and I was talking to him and we both said, you know, it's a shame that we've, we've met under these circumstances. Um, but that was our job. So we mm. went from goose green after goose green, we had a couple of days in goose green where we managed to get a bath, get some scarf, get some sleep. And I had my birthday, I had my 20th birthday at goose green. So <laughs> I managed to find a bottle of port. Um, and I drank a bottle of port. After, I've,
0: I... after what I've heard so far, it doesn't surprise me, Terry.
1: Go on. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I've never been so ill. I was really hanging. It's a port's not a bottle drinking sort of alcohol. With a little glass, maybe. So I was rotten. Um, and then we moved on from there. We moved on to Bluff Cove.
0: Were Siv were was, was sif popping Goose Green at the time? Where did you bath?
1: I bathed in in one of the civilians' houses.
0: Were they there? Were the civvies there or not?
1: Yeah, the civvies had been held um, during the whole occupation, near enough, of the Goose Green area in the the, um, community hall. And the Archies were living in their houses. So that's why we had to clear the area. Um, We had to clear the houses for booby traps. I remember... One house I went in, uh, the owner was there and his cat had been starved by the RGs and he wanted me to shoot his cat. And by the time I'd got to Goose Green, so I, had, I was issued with a GPMG. I had a, an RG9 milli in a shoulder holster and I had a 45 on my hip. And uh, I said, I can't shoot a cat out here. You know, I just couldn't shoot a cat. And he's like, you've, you've been shooting, RPGs. Oh I said, yeah, but I couldn't shoot a cat. So I gave him the nine milli and he had to dispatch his own cat. Um, but yeah, we, it, Goose Green was a mess. You know, there was napalm tanks there. There was all sorts. It was quite frightening. Some of the stuff we found because we were told that they had no NBC capability. And then, you know, I've, Later on in the story, you hear about the mustard gas that we found in Port Stanley, which was, oh. I'm glad they didn't use it. Uh, of course, Argentina wasn't a signatory to the Geneva Convention, which in our briefings on the way down on the Norland, they made it clear it was a military hunter that had killed 30,000 of their own people. Um, anyone left of fascist basically got the good news down there by the sounds of it. So. It was a. It was quite a, um, quite a, a worrying fact that they 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 wasn't playing ball and 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 there was there was the famous surrender at Goose Green where Lieutenant Barry, Paul Sullivan and Mark Holman Smith, the radio operator, went to take a surrender and got shot to pieces. Um, so. It was a little bit hard. They were fighting like hell generally. And, you know, I wasn't in the rifle company, so I wasn't up on the front lines. I, um, My machine guns, uh, when I ended up going from defence platoon to machine guns platoon, we were on a tripod firing maybe a K away. The rifle companies were in within metres of them and clearing trenches. And they would fight like hell. As soon as they thought their trench was going to be overrun, white flag, which is just not cricket, you know. It's, you can't, you can't fight, do your best until you're going to lose, and then, you know, just pull the white flag out. But guys were very restrained. Guys- what's the what's the?
0: Hang on a minute. <laughs> Let's think about that. What's the opposite? What's it? What? Because what you because <laughs> what you're suggesting there is they should just not fight at all. At the start. And just give up straight away. Because right. give it your best shot, wouldn't you? You'd have a go, wouldn't you? You'd have a go. Would, and you, then surrender. You, would you have ever surrendered
1: as a paratrooper?
0: I don't think I'd surrender,
1: mate. No, I don't think I'd it's surrender, not in right? our ethos. But i surrendered. And that was in my thought process, was I was never going to get captured. Even if I had to off myself before, but, you know, that would have been the very last bullet. The, the Every bullet before that would have been going downrange towards them. Um I because of their human rights issues. And obviously they they wound us up a bit on the way down to keep us on our toes that, you know, these are really bad argies. These, these are, you know, military hunter, Nazis, and rah, rah, rah. So we were, we were focused. And then being captured wouldn't have been an option and it's not an ethos in our regiment, I don't think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, after Goose Green, we moved on to Bluff Cove. Um, so the LSLs turned up the the landing or the the landing ships, the the army ships, the and um, I remember I was I was sitting in a trench writing a letter home, and we got an air raid warning. the air, The aircraft flew over low and fast, so we followed them with machine guns and everything, and a uh, lone super entendre let an set missile off and boom, straight into the Sir Galahad, which had the Welsh Guards on. Horrific uh, burns, injuries. I treated a lot of casualties on the beach that day. Um, not just Welsh Guards, but they had a lot of... Uh, the crew on those LSLs generally came from Hong Kong. Um, they worked down in the laundries and in the engine room and things like that. Just horrific burns and burns burns are the worst the worst casualties to deal with, really. Um, So that was a really bad day. Um, Bluff Cove was an awful, awful experience for for Majesty's Forces, really. Um, We moved from there up to... We moved up there to Mount Kent, which had already been taken, and we were were on there, and and an airstrike came in again, I remember the the aircraft flew over me and then over my shoulder, so I turned round and was trying to down it with a jimpy, and apparently I kept the mortars who were based behind us on the mountain, I kept them pinned down in their trenches because the beaten zone of the jimpy was it was wanging in everywhere, and it flew down again. The Navy in all fair, I saw... Um, uh, a seeking helicopter. When it first came, this this Argentine aircraft, the helicopter dropped down into the ground, but then it came back up, and the air loadmaster was trying to down it with a fifty cow from the side door. He <laughs> was like, "Right, brilliant!" So it flew back round and in front of us, and eventually I had um, the platoon sergeant and the platoon commander behind my my machine gun there. And we hit that plane, and it went down. Um, again, it burst into flames and went down out of sight. So we chalked up a plane that day, which was good news. Went from there. We tabbed on then to um, the final real phase of the whole battle, which was Wireless Ridge. And we done a little river crossing on the Merrill River. Um set up our machine gun line and the rifle companies basically or D companies it was went flanking on a flanking attack on a an archie position on a on a, a mountain that was full of crags and rocks, typical of the Falklands, perfect, perfect defensive positions. Um and they, they pushed along the whole whole um the whole heights there of, of Wireless Ridge. That night, all you could hear as paratroopers, we knew what it was. All you could hear was Hercules in and out all the time. Um, they were obviously shipping kit out or people out or whatever. But there was a lot of hurts sta- going in. In the Stanley, s- uh, Stanley, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Wireless Ridge. That that was. Uh, it was quite an interesting in battle. We had we ended up with only about four machine gun decks left. So had a lot they had a lot of casualties to platoon because you know machine guns platoon is their their job is to fire at the enemy and almost draw their fire while the rifle companies go flanking. So when you're out guns, i.e. seven six two to fifty cow and defensive positions, plus they had 105 and 155 artillery, plus 120 mortar, you know, it was it was all a bit hectic and we couldn't really dig in too well that night there was only peak cuttings we were hiding behind the ground it started to snow the The snow started basically when we were on while when we were cracking on on wireless ridge and it really snowed that night so
0: so in your in your um sf position
1: yeah. were you on a were you on a feature or were you in the low ground fire on the ridge we they actually we were just we were on a feature um the, the Argies were on a much higher feature than us, but the, the low ground was, um, if I can <laughs> describe the Falklands to people that haven't been there, um, most of it is just flat, open, featureless, with mountains around, and you it's interrupted by these things called stone runs, which are huge boulders that the glaciers have carved up, and and it, they're left on, on the surface. It's um there's no cover, there's no trees. It's it's so a, a day attack would have been suicidal. A night attack was hard enough as it was. And yeah, the company persevered. They pushed on. We joined them on Wireless Ridge, and then I was firing down onto the waterworks at Moody Brook. And also there was a lot of Argentinians. Coming off the other mountains where the guards and the marines were attacking, they were bugging out. Tumble down, two and, sisters. Yeah, yeah, and they were running into Port Stanley. Um, initially, we opened up on them on the road, and then we decided, no, you know, they're they're no threat. They're basically bugging out. They're not. They're not. They're not reorging at this point. The big worry was. Port Stanley would end up fibula fighting in built up areas, house clearing, booby traps, a lot of casualties, very messy fibula. So we didn't fancy, didn't fancy doing that. So we were in two minds, whether just to zap them or let them go. And I think we'd done the right and the humane thing to let them go. You know, some of them didn't even have weapons. They'd thrown their weapons and they, they just, you know, they checked out, they weren't playing anymore. And it was, uh, Then there was a big push to get into Stanley before anybody. So um, I remember hearing on the net, on the radio, uh, the Marines were, Brigadier was telling us to stop, stop and let 4 5 Commando come through us. Um, Why was that? I think the political thing that, you know, they, it was their, it was their, they're op. Uh, of oh, course, yeah, up, yeah. We come under Commander Free Commando Brigade, so of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, the, you know, it was Marines that were were evicted by the Argies when they invaded. So politically, I you know, wanted to see them take it back. But um, <laughs> an OC that remained nameless said, uh, "Turn the radios off, lads. Take your helmets off. Red berets on. Let's take Stanley." <laughs> and we hot-footed it in Stanley from from uh, Moody Brook to to beat Free Power, which were close on our heels. Free Power were coming. I remember being on Wireless Ridge, and Free Power was still getting smashed with um, the one five fives, in particularly. You can hear them going through the air, and, and you, you're carrying, you're keeping cover still, and you're you're worried about what's you know might bang into your area. And it was like, where's that going? And it's it's going on Longdon onto Free Power, and it was like, whoo, whoo, so glad I'm in Two Power. <laughs> you know, they were they were getting hit for so many days. It seemed like Free Power, Longdon was. Uh, we got a lot of glory for 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 Goose Green. It was the first major battle. It was the first victory. But from what I've seen and heard from friends that served <coughs> in Free Power and fought on Longdon, that was. Uh, why Hollywood hasn't made a movie? I don't know. Because if it was an American thing, there'd be many movies about it. You know, it was. Uh...
0: Well, from my recollection of hearing in people like yourself talk about Goose Green and Mount Longden, and the, the the and we I think we have to make a point here. We're only looking at two and three power in their battles. I mean, mate, you've seen tumble down. Jesus Christ yeah. Almighty! Yeah. Uh, talk about ours i would not ever 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 want to do anything on tumble down never mind have a battle right yeah. it's hard enough going up the bloody thing but from from what i remember about the comparison between goose green and seeing them as well they 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 were both a bit of a nightmare mount long them because of the, the feature the rocky the, the rocky outcrops that you mentioned the one access yeah. up it which is just a firing range for the enemy and then goose green which is the opposite which is completely open just very very little cover a lot of ground to cover where you're completely exposed, you know. Um, yeah. I, but, I mean, look at the wall. What what fucking battle's easy,
1: mate? You know, what battle's easy? Exactly. I mean, in comparison, you know, Wireless wireless Ridge was, it's it seemed an easier battle for two power compared to <laughs> Longdon because, you know, the, we were closer to Port Stanley, yet the artillery was going over us and wanging into three power on Longdon, which was like, wow, you know. Wow, there were a lot of artillery being poured on them, and and as I said, once it all finished, it was uh, it was the rush to take Stanley, and yeah, we pushed on, we got into Stanley, um, free power closely on our heels, a very upset Marine brigadier that the parachute regiment pushed its way into Stanley. Um, I remember, I, I I was I was a scrounger. In a parachute regiment sense, we needed food. I found food. You needed a skip chainsaw. Round. I find round. a chainsaw. It stems from Northern Ireland, you know. Things we'd acquire things and bits of equipment that we needed that we couldn't get through normal channels. So yeah, um, I'd, I'd find stuff. So I'd make it my point to go out and seek food. So I've actually found the central storehouse where the Argies were storing their food. So I saw the RSM of Tupara, and uh, I said to him, sir, I've, I've, this is where all the food is. And he's right, what, he, what you've got to do is guard it. Anyone goes in there, you've got my permission to shoot them dead for looting. Thank you very much, sir. So I am standing there. I didn't smoke in those days. My 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 number two's having his cigarette, and I'm, I think I had a brew on or something, and uh, an SBS officer and a Royal Marine officer turned up and they wanted to go into the food store. And I said, you can't go in there, sirs. um, I've been told to guard it and I've been told to shoot anyone for looting that goes in there. And he said, well, what what gives you the right to take this food? I said, well, the food's been requisitioned by the 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the Parachute Regiment. And he, well, what right have you got to take that food? We were here first, sir. And he, he wasn't <laughs> amused. I sent him off to the RSM, and he went. They both, these officers—one was a major, one was a captain—they went into this building and quickly came out backwards with this six-foot-something scouse RSM from two para, telling them how much he loved them, basically.
0: So yeah, it
1: was it was quite funny. Then um. I mean, who was the Raza? Yeah, who, who was the yeah, Raza? Mal Simpson. Yeah, he 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 basically fobbed them off, and he was he came across and he uh, he he was amused by it all. He was amused. He 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 paid me back because he knew I was pretty scared of heights. Um, even though I was a paratrooper, when you explain to people, I like to fuck with my fear. You put me on a plane, and you know I've went skydiving a few years ago, and. At 15,000 feet, I'm looking down and the inside of my legs are shaking and my heart's going and everything. And I thought, what am I doing here? Then I went, I know what I'm doing here. And, and I loved it. But I'm scared of heights. If I look at a movie and it's a tall building and the camera angle goes over the edge of the building, I go white and grip the sofa. <laughs> So he, he he made me in Port Stanley. We were staying in a schoolhouse and the schoolhouse had a lightning conductor, which had a wooden frame with the lightning conductor. He made me climb up it. It was wet wood that was green with slime. And as I got to the top, it got narrow. It was starting to sway. And I, I'm going through war and I'm going to die. Putting the battalion flag up on a lightning conductor. Um, I also found a slide hammer. My dad was um, a vehicle examiner at Stolen Car Squad in the Metropolitan Police. And the slide hammer's like a drill chuck with a long shaft and a dumbbell that slides on the shaft. At the end is a big rubber handle. And basically what you do is you put a screw on the, in the drill chuck, screw it into a lock of a vehicle and pop the lock out and then you can start it with a screwdriver so i'm driving around in g-wagon mercedes and the rsm scene where'd you get that i said i liberated it sir he said i've liberated it off you get out five minutes later i'm in another one and he's like where are you getting them I said, finding them here sir finding them there And he was like, right, the Colonel wants one. We need this one. We need that one. He chose, go get them. So I I went off on a mission getting G-Wagon Mercedes. So in the end, they painted, they had to register these RG vehicles. So they painted a white square and numbered them on the bonnet. And we sussed out that all you had to do was nick them from the Marines, paint over the number on the white square with a new white square, and put your own number on it. <laughs> <Good> job done. <laughs> so we were robbing them off the Marines in the end. But I, I, I also had a fascination with driving and vehicles, and and two para were heavily into sort of Vietnam movies back in in our era. So I looked everywhere. The Archie's had an L V P T sevens, which is an amphibious armored personnel carrier. It's got one of those hydraulic doors at the back. And I so much wanted to drive into Port Stanley with my own LVP T7, not one on the island. Couldn't find one anywhere. And I, I looked everywhere. I really did search. Um, no, no LVP T7. We found a Panard armored cart, which is a um, four-wheeled armored cart with a uh, a big 120 gun on top and turret. Yeah. Uh we crashed out in Port Stanley. I was driving it, and my friend was in the turret. He shall remain nameless to protect the innocent and As I turned left in a tight turning, he turned the gun right and it took the side of someone 's house out. so we just dis- we just disembarked in the- and abandoned the vehicle stuck into the side of someone 's house, which was uh, quite funny <laughs> um, the the Royal-, the Royal Marine police came in when the Marines came in. They sectored the areas off. So, two and three para had the outer sectors around the race course and, and outwards. And they had the inner sectors, which had the only pubs. And of course, we're paratroopers, we want to drink. So, I was elected to go. Um, I, I, I was on a, four, a 480 single cylinder four stroke Suzuki, which was a bugger to kick over. I um, had a decompression lever to, to sort of make it easy to kick over i had an rg pilot's helmet on and over my uniform i found a blue pro-band boiler suit so i put that on and tucked the collar up like that so you couldn't see the the hair connection for the helmet at the back the royal marine police stopped me and i had a, a mate geordie woodward on the back of the motorbike and they said, uh, where are you going? I said, well, uh, actually, mate, I'm, I'm from, uh, I live in Port Stanley, and uh, when the Argies came, I, I, I ran away. But now now you're here, I want to go back and check my house. And they went, in you go. So we parked outside the pub, outside the Globe, and off with the Pro Ban, on with the Red Beret, walked in the pub, full of free power. So anyway, <laughs> we were, like, uh, so disappointed. We thought we'd really cracked it. Um, some of the old sweats and free power anti tanks, blue, blue, and people like that were all in there. None of us had any money. You know, we didn't have a cent or a name. So I managed to um, sign for a load of alcohol for the rest of the platoon, and we we rode back later that night, very intoxicated, on this big uh, motocross bike, and uh, delivered a plenty of bottles of alcohol to the rest of the platoon. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was chaos in Stanley, you know. there was. Um, I went out to the airfield, um, the original airfield that had been bombed, and that's where the RG prisoners were all. And they were walking from there into Port Stanley, either side of the road, thousands of them, literally thousands of them. And it was it was just a terrible sight to see a defeated army. And it, you know, I, I I never thought we were gonna lose. That's the thing. It's the just I don't know if it's an airborne ethos or a British thing. Even outnumbered, I didn't think we were gonna lose. Mm. So um they weren't into night fighting and there was conscripts, but there was also regular soldiers we fought against. We fought against their their airborne artillery at Goose Green and everything. Um, so we had 17-year-olds that had just come out of depot. Young Dixon that died at Goose Green was 17 years old. You know, he, he'd been in the battalion only a few months. So it's, it's, when people say they were a conscript army, they were young. They really quit and everything. I wasn't Arctic trained. i have been to Kenya. That's not Arctic. South wasn't as close as I got to Arctic, you know, so we weren't Arctic trained. We, we we were on our way to Belize. so We were all switched on to go to the jungle for six months. And instead... Yeah, I'd never heard anything like
0: that being said about, oh, it's this a conscript oh, I mean, mate, the reality is, the reality is, man... Um, it takes a particular kind of person to uh, to go to to find themselves on 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 the front lines of a battlefield. And th- whether you're a conscript or not, or whether you you know whether you've just joined up or not, if you want to find a way out of, of getting into a battle, of going to war, there is always a way out. There's always a way you can find a way out. I've seen it. There's always a way out. So regardless who you are, those people have chosen to be on that on that line. They've chosen to be there, yeah, um, even, yeah. even, 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 even even the even the conscripts in a certain weird kind of way. You know, they, they've not yeah. taken that way out.
1: Even my own mentality, Hugh, where um, you know I'd lost my brother in Northern Ireland, um, <laughs> I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't depersonalise the Argentine army. I couldn't think that's just an RG and it's not a person; it's an RG. Uh, as some people were fortunate enough to do. Um, because of my trauma and my loss, I looked at that Archie as someone's loved one, someone's brother, someone's husband, someone's son. And I I found it difficult. I found it difficult to kill, really, and, and it's not something that I, I, I really wanted to do. I wanted to win the firefight, and I wanted them to go away, whether they died or ran off it didn't bother me. Just stay away from us, and and that's really how impersonal war is. It's not queen and country. It's your muckers left and right of you. That's who you care about. That's that's who you're fighting for. You know, and and, and all the regimental history and pride that goes with it. But it's your muckers, and it, it was um, it was a good, as Ray said, it was a good, clean war. It was green on green. No civilians, no there was booby traps, but no IEDs, no people terrorists melting into the civilian population. No civilians killed really. I think a couple got killed um, in airstrikes, and that was it. you know it was, um, it was a very clean and, and the fact, I've, I've worked in motorsport since I've left the Army, so this would have been my 30 second year in motorsport. Um, COVID is, has scuppered my 32nd year, COVID-19. But I've worked with a number of Argentinians. I've been to Cordoba in Argentina. I've been to Buenos Aires. Um, I've met more of the wealthy, middle-class, educated Argentinian that works in motorsport as data engineers, etc. Et and they thanked me for the Falklands War. The fact that right. their military hunter. Got ousted after the Falklands. A democratic government got voted in under Carlos Menem. Argentina in the 80s was booming until it bust, but it was a, you know, it had a booming economy.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that. I mean, we're, we're going to have to knock on the head, head in a minute, but
1: yeah, um, mate, it's been, it's
0: been fascinating to listen to you. It's been fascinating to listen to you. Um, you dodgy, you dodgy thieving bastard. <laughs> uh, I'm never <Scramper.
1: laughs> I, I, I never. <laughs> <Scramper>. I never... <laughs> Skip. I never, I never stole anything here. I liberated things.
0: I think, I think, I think we would have called that a skip rat when I was in it.
1: <laughs> Sc- scroung- scroungers in my day, yeah.
0: yeah. But yeah. in in uh, when you're saying, uh, you know, about the Argentinians you met and them thanking you. See, yeah. I've got a, I've got a different experience with that. I've got Argentine family, um, and they are, they're a bit younger than me. But the, the people I'm in touch with, mainly my cousins, they're yeah. a bit younger than me. And they, they are, I mean, flipping heck. They are staunch. No, Malvinas is ours. He shouldn't have fucking gone there. Ours. you know. And to the point where I don't, they're brilliant. I mean, they've got mega humor. One of them, uh, I, Lou, we're mega mates. You know, She's been in the UK for a long time. She now understands yeah. reg humor because I, I beast her, mate. Every opportunity I get, I beast her about the fall. Good. It's a beast her. When I don't do it is when she's been drinking because then she goes, she just il, gets angry. And it all, il, you know, the, the real. Oh,
1: il passione, as they call it. The passion comes out.
0: Yeah. The passion, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. They, I mean, they, 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 they the, the conscript people and the average Argentinian. When I was in Cordoba, some of the guys thought it'd be funny to sort of drop little hints to the locals of what I used to do for a living. And it was uh they didn't realise how how quickly it could go so wrong as well. And fortunately it didn't, you know, but um I, I I felt I felt very weary there. But as I said, I've worked with a lot of Argentinians and and I I see their their thought process also behind it. The Malvinas when it happened or the Falklands You know, we were like, why are they in Scotland? What are they doing in Scotland? What? Surely they come all this way to Scotland. In fact, it was the reverse. We were going all the way down there. Yeah, crazy,
0: mate, crazy. Listen, it's been a pleasure, mate. Been a pleasure. Is there anything, before we knock on the ends, anything you want to mention? Anything, yeah, anything at all? Plug tie, shameless plug tie.
1: Yeah I'm 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 the secretary of uh, London PRA um the London branch I'm also the regional secretary of London so I would encourage guys come and join the PRA we're looking for younger members the older members now are um less active because of age and the restrictions on traveling and getting in and late evenings so the Pra needs an injection of youth, so please join the Pra. It's great fun. It's it's each branch is its own charity, so it's charity, fraternity, and brotherhood.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I, I agree, mate. An important thing to note. I think, and not just it can't just be with like Power Edge Association, but with other military associations. I think there is a legacy of younger guys staying away or not being not seen it as something they're going to be a part of just because it, it was one thing after the Second World War and, and or even for even older regiments and hours you know yeah. it, it's one thing but man it's like my experience with Coventry branch you've got other branches the East Anglia branch where uh, you've got Young Lads join that you've got your uh, you got the whole region of London where you've got Young Lads join that and Northampton branch I think you have got to become a part of it to sort of guide it to where you want to go. I really enjoy it, man. I really enjoy it. I enjoy, I, I enjoy uh, speaking with the old and the bold. And then we have, you know, we organise like social events, younger, younger guy events. Or we go down the fucking pub, and we get pissed. You know, yeah. oh, it, it, you just you got to be a part of it. And the important thing I think to realise is it it is a support network. Aside from the social side, it is a huge support network. I did not realise and there's there's stuff that just being a member of the PRA and certainly being active in the branch can open up and support you never know when you're going to be on your ass you never know when you're going to be asked financially mentally w- emotionally you know whatever and the PRA is one of those and any regiment association is one of those avenues where you can go and get advice and guidance definitely,
1: definitely. what well, the, the the big the big thing about particularly our regiment is the the the, the airborne pride and you know, people, you'll see a, a former colleague and you are how are you doing? And he'll tell you everything's rosy. And, you know, he spent his last £10 to get to, to Aldershot or the Cenotaph, wherever you've met them. And, and you know, there's that pride. And then they don't have, they won't ask for help. And by the time help gets to the miss, in a lot of cases, suicides through the Falklands War, it's too late. It's far too late. And we have an obligation as brothers to keep an eye out for these people to to spread our networks and 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 also spread the word of the pra that it is here to help you it's not a, a it's not so um formal anymore it's it's a brotherhood and it's a fraternity that's there for everyone that served with the parachute regiment and airborne forces is being led by paul paul raisin and it's 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 starting to change one of the branches is doing its first virtual agm through zoom to uh, tomorrow night because of covid-19 that's a step forward into the 21st century and that's where we'll get the younger and newer members by bringing it into their into their sphere not not keeping it back as it was after the war and in the 50s it's moved on now well the two different ways to coexist but i mean you said it perfectly mate Terry,
0: it's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed it, mate. Brilliant. (laughs) We'll come back for part two. (laughs) Definitely, mate. One second. Right, let's hit that. Thank you for listening to the H-Hour podcast. If you liked it, leave us a review if you can, If you can, on whatever app you're using, you can definitely do it. If you are like an iTunes user, iPhone user, you can do it on an Apple Podcast. I'd really appreciate it. Also, give it a share, especially these uh, these war stories from back in the day. You uh, they seem they seem to as time goes on, they seem to get lost between the cracks of everything else that goes on since, and uh, it's not right. So um, please give it a share. Let your mates know about it. Let your family know about it, and let them enjoy it too. You can also support the podcast um, in other ways. You can do it through Patreon.com forward slash. HK Podcasts, and that means you'll get access to all the podcasts early. You get uh, uh, other freebies and goodies and perks by doing it that way. You don't have to be a business to do that. It's like sponsorship, you can do it individually. Thank you to my Patreon, my existing Patreon supporters. Let's give someone a shout out. Who shall I give a shout out of my existing Patreon supporters? Let me think. Faith Garrity. Faith Garrett, who supports me all the way from Japan. She hasn't got the most Japanese sounding name, so I don't quite understand what's going on. But nevertheless, she's in Japan. She supports me on Patreon and her name's Faith Garretti. That traditional Japanese name. Thank you, Faith. And uh and has your as your as your um as your friend listen to the how's your friend, if you listen to this, as your friend listen to the Nigel Farage interview without trying to throw the uh trying to throw the podcast device out of the window? Don't know. Let me know. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> Thank you, my sponsors, again. Rugby for Heroes, not-for-profit organisation, organising events to support the military community through fundraising and passing that fundraising on to military charities. Awesome. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. People, to keep up to date with what events Rugby for Heroes have got going on, you need to go to their social media at Rugby4Heroes. number That is it. Thank you to everybody. Thank you to the guest. Thank you to the sponsors. Thank you to the Patreon supporters. Thank you to you for listening. Until the next time, out.